Hello, I'm Paul Cuddehy and welcome to this special Read All About It podcast series, The 12 Days of Bookless. Do you see what I did there? And here's what you can look forward to. 12 days, 12 guests and a whole host of great book recommendations as each guest chooses their favourite fiction and non-fiction read of 2020. Well, I also choose a book I've enjoyed reading this year. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about this special Read All About It podcast series. Hello and welcome to the 12 Days of Bookmas, a special podcast brought to you by Read All About It podcast. We are in the 12th and final day of Bookmas just before Christmas. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by my friend and regular guest, Chris Dolan. Chris, thanks for joining me. Day 12 of the 12 Days of Bookmas. Uh, day 12. There we go. That's, that's a good day. What, what happens on day 12? 12. Do you know the you know, Paul? 12 something's, 12 something's doing something. I don't. I, I, as long as you don't ask me to try and sing any of it either. Um, obviously, this year for you, you know, as well as the, the many starring appearances on the Read All About It podcast, you know, your book came out this year, and uh, I think a difficult time for every writer who has had to, to bring a book out, you know, given the current circumstances. But you know, you must still be pleased with the, the finished book and some of the responses you've had from it. Yeah, I'm actually. Yeah, um, so it's kind of weird once a book's finished. There's always that bit of you, isn't it, that thinks, "I wish I'd done that bit better, or I could do, do this bit again, or whatever." But that's always going to be the case. And you did do that again. Yeah, no, it's getting, it's getting a great response uh, from the readers. It's, it's doing quite well. Apparently, they've gone to a, a reprint of it. Um, and everybody I know, admittedly, people are always nice to you to your face, so it's hard to tell. But um, but I think, actually, you, you, can, you can kind of tell. Uh, and people are into it in, in, in a reasonably good way. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good it's out there. It's also, I think, as you'll know too, Paul, there's a bit of you that's glad it's out and gone, you know, on to the next thing. Because it's taken up so much of your time and your headspace. But actually, anyway, that's that done. What's the next thing? And I'm kind of now at that stage, uh, thinking, great, I can read something else now. Well, for anybody who's been listening to all these 12 Days of Bookmas, they'll, they'll already know that Martin Gregg and I had a chat about your book. Martin picked that as his favourite non-fiction read of, of 2020. So we were, we were both waxing lyrical about it. You clearly get people with real taste and discernment <laughs> on, your, on your podcast, Paul. That's brilliant. That's so nice of Martin to do that. That's great. To be perfectly honest, I'm just really glad you read it and liked it. That's just great. In terms of the, the podcast, obviously I'm asking everybody throughout these 12 days to pick their favourite non-fiction and fiction read of 2020, and then I'll pick a book that I've read during the course of the year. So if, if I start with the, the non-fiction book that you've chosen, and that's a book called The Years by Annie Erno. And what was it about that book that, that stood out for you? First of all, I say that because this has been a year that I've been spending a lot of time uh, right up, because I mean, the book came out, uh, my book came out three weeks ago, but I mean, honestly, up to just about a week before it, like almost a day before it went to print, you're still working on it. Still little things you're doing and everything else. So I don't know if you find this, but years when you're actually really into writing a book, you need a lot less, just because you have less time. So actually, when you asked me this, I thought, I haven't read that much this year. And when I have been reading things that tended to have something to do with what I was writing, so this book, I happened to be, I was about, I was about three quarters of the way through the writing of the book, I would say, and I happened to have a coffee with Graham McRae Burnett, who wrote uh, his buddy project. And I was, I was telling him what I was doing with the book, how I was trying to do certain things. And he said, that sounds awful like a book that I've read. So not, not in the, the, the theme and not just the way I was doing it. He says, I've just read this book and it sounds like you're doing something very similar. And the book was by a writer who I now realise I should have heard of, but I hadn't. A French writer called Annie Erno. And it's called The Years. And the similarity is because it's, it's a memoir as well. Or is it? 
So my book's a kind of a memoir, but it's that thing about you're trying to write about the world you lived in rather than you yourself. And somebody once pointed out memoirs a bit like memoir, and you're trying not to write a memoir. And I think she does it brilliantly. So basically, Annie Arnaud is a, I think a professor of creative writing or, or French literature, the Sorbonne in Paris anyway, very well established writer. She's now in her 70s, I think. But what's really clever about this book is she never refers to herself in the I. She never says, I was born and I did this and my parents did that. She talks about she or they, meaning her whole generation. So she talks about shows working, and there's a lot of things that uh, you and I uh, have in common with this, although she's French, working class Catholic background. So she talks about they, meaning kind of that community in a small town in the north of France and what it was like to grow up in, within Catholicism in, in this little small town in a, in a fairly poor neighbourhood. So it's brilliantly done. It's also kind of really, it's not just about her, it's about the whole, kind of, the whole of France, really, and all the movements and things that happened right through the 1968, Paris 68, and the revolution and all of that, the almost revolution. So she talks about the rise of feminism, about television, about you know, the, the rise of technology, but it's so well done. And the other thing she does, and this is the only thing I stole from her, obviously when she's been writing it, she's had a whole series of photographs, family photographs, and photographs of her student days and all of that. And she says, the girl in the middle, and you know that's her, the girl in the middle, the girl at the side, she's wearing this, she's doing that, and she now, as an older woman looking back, is wondering what she's thinking. So I, I did two little portraits. I put in quite late into the book then two little portraits of when I was busking in Spain and doing exactly that. And it's actually a great thing to do. I really enjoyed writing that. So I thought she does really interesting things. But it's also sort of a read. I mean, it's just, it's just written. It's so fluid to read. And she's quite funny. And she's also very angry a lot of the time. And so I, really, I always like writers that are pissed off. You know, <laughs> she's quite pissed off a lot of the time. But it's dead cleverly done. And it's really readable. And it's also really French. So kind of, you know, as lockdown kind of came in just when I was reading this, I think, it was just a nice way of travelling to France. Uh, so thoroughly recommend it. Great book. I was wondering if, the, you know, the challenge of writing a memoir, which, you know, passes everything remains your book, is to an extent as well. It's, it's a, a book about, you know, you can describe it in so many different ways. It's a book about cycling, a book about Spain, a book about travel, but memoir and memories runs right through it. Is there a difficulty in knowing what to put in and what to leave out, but also because you're having to give something of yourself and maybe things that you've maybe not told anyone before or revealed, and not only you're just telling people that you know, you're telling the whole world. There's a bit of you. There's bits in the book. Uh, you, you know, so the, the the dodo chapter. I remember writing it. I remember I remember writing it without really planning to write it. It just kind of happened because there was this point when I got you know when everything should have been perfect. The world was a lovely day. I was out with my mates in Spain cycling. I wasn't working. I was cycling well. Everything was great. And for some reason, I just kind of took a bit of a, a nosedive, which I, I know I do from time to time. So I had to kind of write about that, but I didn't have to. I could have just left it out. You're right. You could leave it all sorts of things. And that bit went in, out, in, out endlessly. And so often I thought, I can't put that in the book. Take that back out. And you, yeah, and at the end of the day, actually, it's when it happens to go to print, you know, because if I wait another week, I might take it back out again. So, yeah, it's a bit hard to say what, what, what's of interest. Uh, and what also I think for Annie Erno's book as well is there's another writer, by the way, that I talk about a lot in, in my book, which is Fela, who's a Spanish writer who's written a whole series of really classic travel uh, books in Spain. And he always refers to himself as he. So he talks about the traveller. So he never says, I got up and I went to this place. He went, the traveller gets up in the morning, he leaves Cuenca and he goes to somewhere else. And that way of just kind of bringing yourself apart. And I think you always look for things which aren't just about you. So you look at it and think, does that have 
does that have kind of an echo reverberation for other people? Uh, do other people, will other people kind of associate with that or find that interesting rather than just, isn't this a funny thing that happened to me? So I think you're always trying to choose what's, what, what's got a wider kind of appeal rather than just an interesting thing that happened to, happen to you. Yeah, it's funny when you mentioned that, that bit in your book about, you know, the, the dodo, as it were, and, and certain periods where that kind of appears and you just say you took a bit of a nose. Like that, that took me by surprise when I was reading that. Just because obviously I know you're up to a point, but then, as, as I was saying, when you're having to, to maybe reveal other things of yourself that you prefer probably just in face-to-face contact of not telling people, then I suppose that that's a, a brave thing, I suppose, for any writer to do. As we are, it's the kind of thing I find... I don't really have a problem with it or feel kind of like overexposed when it's strangers reading it. But I'm slightly aware of when friends and family read it, that that, that does feel like uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't have put that in. I have actually told a number of people what I've ever said to you, but there's a chapter called The Dodo, just miss it. <laughs> so people are like, oh, really well, so you don't have to read that bit. Uh, which, of course, is the stupidest thing to say because it's the very first thing we go to. So don't do that. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's like you particularly with people you know. And also, I think you don't want to come across as, as being self-obsessed and whining. Uh, so there's also the danger of that too. That you know, oh poor you, you know, you, you're sick across across uh, Spain with your mates, and and you felt a wee bit rough. That's a real big shame, isn't it? You know, so so there, there are dangers in that. No, and each of the the twelve days of book, Miss, I've chosen a book that I've read over the course of 2020. So I thought since well, this episode's going out on Christmas Eve, that that I would choose the New Testament which I read in 2020. Now, I know before we've recorded this, and I said that to you, and you did sort of jokingly say, is that under fiction or non-fiction? <laughs> I mean, I suppose it depends on your, uh, your beliefs to an extent of how you look at, you look at it. The reason that I'd read it, I, I only ever read, I remember when I was a child, my mum and dad had got me, it was like a kid's illustrated Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and I just remember reading them cover to cover, you know, there were great illustrations that were written. I would have still been in primary school at the time. Obviously, the, the New Testament, you know, the story of Jesus, that's kind of more familiar. That's what we would have been taught at school and going to Mass. The Old Testament is just a rip-roaring read. Uh, just lots of uh, wars and battles and adventure. And obviously, they take out all the kind of stuff uh, that, that maybe isn't suitable for, for children for that. But that is the only time in my life that I've ever read the Bible. But it's always stuck with me. But I was very conscious of the fact that, and I think maybe Catholics in terms of Christians, their knowledge of the Bible maybe isn't as good as other Christian denominations. And we hear what we hear at Mass, for those of us that go to Mass. But I'd actually got, I'd got the, the Bible, it was, part of it was just the, the version I got, the, the New Community Bible, a Catholic version. I mean, there's a, there's a million and one different versions, but it was just even the, the actual book. It's got a you know, zip-up cover, so it's just the, the books within this great cover. It actually looks beautiful. And so at the start of the year, I thought I would just start. I would just start reading the New Testament all the way right through to the very, very end, um, and just kept doing that. And it was it was quite an interesting read. There was obviously there was lots of it that was familiar with me, but there was lots of it which was new. And, and obviously, I'm coming at it from a point of view of belief. Other people either would read it or would be more skeptical or wouldn't believe. But I mean, that's obviously that's people's personal choice. But I was quite I was quite pleased when I had finished it, and so I've kind of started again, come back and as well as reading some of the Old Testament, starting reading it again, but it's more slowly. And the, the version I've got, there's lots of footnotes as well, which is quite good of kind of interpreting various bits, which makes the reading experience longer, but actually kind of gives you a better understanding of it. Did you find a, a really big difference in, in style between Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? Well, I mean, obviously that's just the, obviously the first part of the New Testament, because then you go on to the, 
the acts of, you know, after the, the fiction, the acts of apostles, the letters of Paul, all, all that sort of thing. But the four Gospels, it's quite good because it started to kind of give a brief context. So three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, are all very much linked. I think they call them the synoptic Gospels. So they seem to source each other. I don't think there's a definitive as to who was first out of the three, but there's elements, particularly Matthew and Luke. At times, it's almost like the same story. So for example... You know, the Christmas story, the nativity narrative that we all know, that's a combination of those two Gospels. It's not mentioned in the other two at all. You know, they kind of, they start basically almost like Jesus is an adult, whereas those other ones go back to those formative years. So they're very, very similar. And then John's Gospel is completely different. I, I quite enjoyed then reading beyond that, of like particularly a lot of the things that would be the basis of what, for example, the Catholic Church would teach and believe now. is very much a lot of that's, based, for example, on the letters of St Paul. So that was quite interesting just to read a lot of that. How do you find the language of it? I know, I don't know, the, I've seen that one, uh, the, the, what's it called again? The New it's community. called New Community. I've seen that around, I think it's one the Catholic Church uses a lot, isn't it? So uh, the Bible gets updated all the time, but how, how generally do you find the language of, of reading it? It was fine. I mean, it's, it's very much written in, in contemporary English. You know, it's it was easy to, to read. There's not any, you know, there's not any of the thou and thy and, you know, kind of more formative and historical language. It's very much up to date. The, I mean, the reason I asked that is, I, unlike you, I haven't gone up the cover. I did a few years ago because uh, Canon Gate Books brought out, I think it was just the Gospels. I've got it there somewhere, but uh, it might be the whole of the New Testament. Uh, and it, little individual, lovely little books, actually, just little individual ones for each of the chapters, the Gospels and the Acts and all that stuff, uh, with a commentary by different people. So Nick Cave did one, for instance. I think he chose the Gospel of John or whatever one it was that he did anyway. Uh, so it's interesting people, people you wouldn't expect in a commentary. And I did, I did read some of those, but not really cover to cover. I read some of those. But I'm interested in the language jokes. I do, I do use the, the example of the Bible in my, my, my writing classes at Glasgow Caledonian. That, that story about Tyndall, who originally translated the Bible. So up until then, it only been in Latin, so the priests could tell everybody what it meant because they didn't really speak Latin. And when Tyndall, very much going out of the Protestant Reformation, of course, when Tyndall translates it, he translates it absolutely into kind of low English. And he, he makes it as, as modern. It doesn't sound modern to us now, of course, but it's real punchy, one-syllable words, words quite often, you know. And the beginning was the word, and the word was made flesh, and stuff like that. Boom, 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 boom. And as a lot of people still think it's an abdic, he was just a master of writing. The, the original text was brilliant anyway and really fascinating. But the, the way it comes into English is just this really punchy, lively storytelling. So I wasn't quite interested in that. So did you find it sort of you know, quite page-turning? I, I did take my time because I was quite often referring to these footnotes. I'm not sure who it was. It's done It's kind of, kind of theological analysis of, of kind of giving you a greater interpretation of maybe like a, a couple of passages. So just it was quite good sometimes just to read and see what the what the interpretation of that is. So it took, it took me a bit of time, so I wasn't like racing through it. And also I, was, I wasn't reading all, you know, I was maybe reading it every day, but just dipping into a wee bit, because obviously I was just reading other things. And I think it's not the sort of thing that you would want to rush through. Yeah, well, you inspired me to go back and look at the, the, new, the new Testament. I've, not, I've never read the Old Testament like you, because of Catholic upbringing. And also, I think, in literature. Uh, I remember once, by the way, when I was at university studying English literature, a professor of English literature, really famous, uh, his name's in my head at the moment, but he mentioned the Bible at some point. And I think this must happen more now than by then, some talk, 40 years ago or something. But someone in the class complained and said, excuse me, professor, but I'm not a Christian and I, I don't know these books, I'm not interested in them. <laughs> Can you do this now? But uh, the professor threw the guy out of the room. 
and said, if you have no interest in reading the Bible or understand the Bible, the language of the Bible, you will not understand anything in the whole of English language literature and probably the whole of, kind of European language literature as well. In which case, and you've got no curiosity, so leave my class now. <laughs> and the guy did. Uh, but there's something in that, I think, that, you know, so even though I haven't read uh, cover to cover, I think I recognise most of the stories because they come up endlessly in books, plays, articles, people's thinking, whatever. So there's something still incredibly current with these books, isn't it? I also think it's no coincidence, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Desert Island Discs. Uh, I listen to it all the time. And it's no coincidence in the format of that that each guest are given the Bible and the complete works of Shakespeare. Now, some people, for religious reasons, will choose the Holy Book of their faith. That was fine. And then some people will say, they'll have a disparaging comment about the Bible. But, you know, go back to what you're saying about anchoring, certainly literary culture, those two books, as it were, or the, the body of what Shakespeare, they, they are very central to what's come, you know, in terms of what we read and what we understand and what we know. I was with nothing about Tyndall's Bible. I think it's the, King, the King James Version. So the first one that was kind of really widely kind of uh, read and distributed in the language of it. And I went to see uh, Melvin Brown, I went to a lecture at his uh, Strathclyde University about five or six years ago, and he says that Shakespeare could only write the way that he, did, he does because of the, that Bible. So again, that punchy language, to be or not to be, that is a question. Uh, that kind of dum, 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 dum is completely influenced by it. I think you're right, I think it's had a huge influence. It always annoys me, annoys me when some, when well, you understand entirely if you've got a different faith, then you, know, you take the Quran or um, the Talmud, the word you want to take with you instead of the Bible. The, the people just say, no, I don't want the Bible. I was like, well, that's just really stupid because actually you're going to be in this island for a long time and it's something to read. You know, even if you don't agree with it, it's got to be interesting, surely. You know? So I'm always amazed at people. And if it, you don't get it very often when you do. I can find myself shouting at the radio going, for God's sake, take it. <laughs> So in terms of the, the podcast, we're now on to your, your fiction choice. And the book that you've chosen is a book by Margaret Atwood, and that is Hagseed. So obviously, people are very familiar with Margaret Atwood for The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments. But I, I know I've been speaking to you before, uh, you're a big fan of this novel. Yeah, I'm, uh, I can't remember the conversation was. Um, so that's there, Margaret Atwood. I've read The Handmaid's Tale and a couple other of Margaret Atwoods. Uh, she's a great writer and stuff like that, but uh, couldn't say that I was a kind of an expert or, or, or a massively huge fan. And I can't remember what the conversation was, but I remember I was in university and I was talking to somebody, and I can't remember how it came about, but this uh, colleague of mine, uh, Julian, said, you've really got to read this book. Uh, it's Margaret Atwood, and it's about somebody in a small town in Canada who, for various reasons, has to put on an odd version of Shakespeare's The Tempest. There was nothing about that sentence that particularly attracted me. <laughs> I thought, all right, right, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll do it in a university setting. Oh, yeah, 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 I'll need that at some point. But then a couple of days later, he brought it in. And I did just started it. And honestly, uh, it's just phenomenal. It comes out of uh, some challenge or other. There's a whole number of books where people were, uh, leading writers were asked to write something new, but kind of loosely based on a Shakespeare play. So I think Ali Smith did, uh, did one. Uh, a whole number of people done one. I haven't read the others. This is the only one I've read. So she decided to do The Tempest, which is one of my, one of my favourite Shakespeare plays, as if I'm a Shakespeare scholar. So I've seen The Tempest and I've always liked, I've always liked the idea of The Tempest, so I was kind of attracted to it for that reason. And it's this mad story about a kind of really annoying theatre director, I won't give away the story, who for various reasons has to go into hiding a bit like The Tempest, uh, like not an island, but he goes into hiding in this place in the middle of nowhere in Canada, and then reappears for other various reasons to produce a version of The Tempest with uh, lifers in a, in a Canadian prison. 
and it's just one of the maddest books I've ever read. I mean, it's, it's the whole story is just like completely crazy. Yeah, it's something that's slightly believable. You can kind of see this guy, and you can see how a production like that might well come off. And then what he does with this production is just enormous. He just does this. It's just a huge revenge, basically. Uh, he uses the play to, to get his revenge on a whole number of people. But I never really thought of Margaret Atwood as being that funny. Honestly, I, I very seldom laugh out loud at a book. I can name four or five books maximum that I've laughed out loud at. There's plenty of books I find funny, but you might have a little smile uh, on your face. But to laugh out loud and laugh out loud regularly, that was maybe that I thought was absolutely hilarious. And also at the same time, kind of sad. And, and by the end of this big scene towards the end, quite scary. So she just hit so many notes all the way through it. So... Even if you know it's slightest bit interested in Shakespeare or know nothing about The Tempest, you don't need to know anything about The Tempest to read this book. They tell you the story of The Tempest in it anyway, so you, know, you, you know that pretty early on. Uh, it's just a rip-roaring read, and it's hilarious. And if you're looking for a really good book over Christmas to, or over the holidays, it will completely kind of just take up your... That thing a great book does, it, you know, it just takes up your entire attention. You're completely in it. That book is brilliant. Because I think that's, uh, you know, that idea of the, the laughing loud funny, that's such a difficult skill for any writer because it's difficult to make anyone laugh. You know, for example, a stand-up face-to-face, you've got an audience because you can interact. To then transpose that onto the page where you you have no idea who your audience is, where they are, what they're doing at the time. You know, there's very few people that are able to do that and do that well. Absolutely. But if you want one writer, the one that always became one of my choices, uh, it's a book that you recommended, Kevin Barry's Nightboat to Tangiers ago. And I read a, a, another one of Kevin Barry's, Beetlebone. And Kevin Barry's one of the few writers that can also make me laugh out loud. Uh, I've been annoying uh, my missus in, in, in bed at night because she's trying to read her book and I'm, I keep bursting out laughing at, the, at this book, the Kevin Barry book. So he can do it. He's one of the few I'd say could do it. Clive James's memoirs are absolutely hilarious. But most of the time, I think you're right, I think most of the time you can say people ask it, but you don't like it, it's really funny, but you didn't actually laugh out loud. You can't laugh inwardly. It's very, very hard, I think, to make people actually burst out laughing. And Atwood can do that. She's one of these writers that can do so many things. She's deeply serious, really good at kind of characterization and moving you and everything else and make you think of things, but she's also hilarious. Because I wonder as well, that, that obviously that book is maybe not as well, not as well known as... The Handmaid's Tale, definitely, and then The Testaments. But on the one hand, you know, obviously those books take over in terms of when people think of Margaret Atwood, to, maybe to the detriment of that. The other side of that coin, possibly, is that people then, having read the, the two more famous books, or certainly The Handmaid's Tale, then go and read that because they want to, you know, particularly if they, you know, the way you do, if you, you like a book by someone, quite often you then want to go and read everything else that they've done. So it actually might find more readers than it has up to now. Yeah, and I mean, when, when, when Julian mentioned this to me, you know, again, because partly because of the business that I'm in, you know, I thought, although I hadn't read that many, that I, I knew of a lot of Atwood's novels, but I've never heard of this one. In fact, the point when he first mentioned it to me, I'd heard it wrongly, so when I actually saw it as a hag seed, I think I'd got it wrong, and that's slightly kind of interested me. What was a hag seed? Uh, but, but if you look at her the list of novels, first of all, she's written a hell of a lot more than I'd ever realised. Um, so if you, you know, if you get into Atwood, your, your next year is sorted for you because she's written so much. There's so many things that you know, I've heard of. Alias Grace, we all know about that. Um, and I've read that one. I've never read Cat's Eye, but I knew it existed. So there's all sorts of things you've heard of, but I never heard of this. And to be honest, I've talked to other people who know Atwood better than I do, and they haven't heard of this either. So, yeah, uh, you, you end up discovering stuff. And what I loved about it was it came from a recommendation. And part of why I read it was is that kind of weird thing 
It's not because of the way Julian sold it to me, because what he sold to me, I thought, mm, I don't know. It's because I like him. And I kind of think, well, if he likes it. And I, I always think it's great to read books. It's funny, like, uh, Hugh McDonald was another guest in the 12 Days of Bookmas, and he, in the course of that, he commented his great fear. He uh, was in fear of possibly running out of books to read. He refers it back to something that happened in childhood. Somebody, somebody made some comment. Actually, uh, somebody didn't get in touch with me, uh, a woman called Jennifer Gilmore, who, who listens to all the podcasts, and she said, which I think is probably reflective of most of us, actually, it's the only way around, that you, you worry about never having enough time uh, left to read all the books that you want to read or even that you don't know you want to read yet but are still there to be found. I think that second one is, is right that I can't think that all the books you want to read and there is a whole number but I quite often think once you get to my age if you haven't read them yet there's probably a pretty good reason for it. What worries me more is the books that you don't know about. Uh, yeah you're right you do. <laughs> I mean we talked this before but people begin to count the years they have left and how many books they have in them and I'm a slow reader. So, you know, I don't, you know, it takes me a long time to get through any books. I'm, I'm approaching my mid-60s, for God's sake. I better, I better hurry up. Well, that, uh, I'm afraid, is us almost out of time for this. The last in the, the 12 days of Bookmas, the, the Christmas Eve episode. You've been a guest on the podcast a few times. It's always great to talk books with you. And thanks for the recommendations. And, and have a wonderful Christmas. Same to you. It's always great to be on this, uh, this, this podcast. A lovely podcast. I think you do it really well. So it's brilliant. So same to you, Paul. Hope you have a great Christmas. Whatever's going to turn out like this year, I'll be making the best of it in some way or another. Plenty of time to read. Thanks for listening to the 12 Days of Bookness, a special Read All About It podcast series that is so special it even has its own theme tune. You can subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, which will help other book lovers find us. And I hope you can join me, Paul Cuddy, on the next episode. In the meantime, keep reading. Mm-hmm.